Welcome to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, joined today by Daniel Grothy and Glenn Pacquia. So guys, I want to have a conversation today about one of the most taken-for-granted aspects of life in the local church, the Bible. In my experience, the Bible is one of those pieces of church life that we are often the poorer for not thinking carefully about. When it becomes simply part of the furniture of church life, I think that something is lost. On the other hand, my experience has been that when we have a clear sense of what the Bible is and how it's supposed to function in our life together as a community, great strength is released into the church. So I want to get us started today with the simplest possible question I can think of asking for a conversation like this. What is the Bible? That's just it, isn't it? I mean, I think how we see this book determines how we approach it. And everybody knows they're supposed to read the Bible, but we don't often stop to ask the question, well, what kind of book is this? You know, what, what is this thing? And so over the years, I've sort of made a little running list of paradigms that we uh, subconsciously sort of adopt, and we tend to approach the Bible maybe like a, like a textbook. Let's just read this for information about God, or maybe it's a, it's a cookbook. Read it for formulas and recipes. Do this. Sprinkle a little faith into that, and voila, you have this flourishing life. Or maybe, as it's more often used in Christian cultures, as this kind of coffee table book open it up, find little nuggets of inspiration and little tidbits here for the soul. and Or a magic book. There's something magical. If you just say this verse three times... The genie with, is released. Yeah, with music, you know, all of a sudden, boom, as if it has sort of spells written in it, you know, almost. And then maybe the fifth, and this may be the most pervasively American way, is to treat it like a rule book. That Okay, this is all about the stuff that we've got to do. And even people who avoid reading the Bible might be avoiding it because they, they think that's what it is. I think the Bible is the mediation of the presence of God to his people by his spirit, written by the hands of his saints. It's the natural result of the God who keeps coming to his people. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve run away. And the next thing is God comes looking for them. Well, this is the God who's continuously looking for his people. And so he's coming to us to restore us. He's coming to us to heal us. He's coming to us to communicate to us. He's our father. And so he's going to speak to us as his people. So why, though, this particular collection of books? I mean, we're talking about a compendium of literature that's thousands of years old. I just had a niece on uh, my wife's side of the family come to me saying, Pastor Andrew, you know, or Uncle Andrew, <laughs> uh, Uncle Andrew, help me think about this. I just got in a conversation with one of my classmates in college who's saying to me, how is it that this book that's thousands of years old and written to very different people from us, how is it that it matters for us today? So why this collection of books and why and how does it still speak? I mean, what are we talking about here? What did you say to her? Oh, I'll save that for later. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I was on a on a panel at a local university, uh, you know, campus event, and that was one of the first questions of the Q and A. What makes the Bible authoritative? Like, okay, so maybe it's not a rule book or whatever, but if you're going to call it God's word, it holds some special place in our life, and. You know, I think the best way into that answer is to begin with the resurrection and to begin with talking about Jesus, that these followers of Jesus on that Sunday and the days following, they began to realize maybe this fella wasn't just a guy who was a good teacher who performed some miracles. Maybe this was God meeting us in the flesh. Maybe this is God fulfilling all the things he said he was going to do. So not only does it in one way 
legitimate the old, what we call the Old Testament and make this itself God speaking, but it culminates it. It brings yep. the story to its proper good and proper completion and fulfillment. And so that when they would write these stories down, that's why Luke could end his gospel by saying, and Jesus began to open the scriptures to them and say, this is how it speaks of me. And that to me is one of the strongest points about this, that Jesus claimed these scriptures as pointing to him. So to answer your question, yes. Daniel, so to my niece, the couple of things that I said to her were, number one, just on a purely human level, on a purely literary level, just because something is old does not mean it does not matter. If that were the case, we wouldn't read anything written before last year, right? And so old things still matter, and it's good to sort through them and and wrestle with the ideas that those people were wrestling with and compare them against ideas in our day. So that's not a disqualifier. I said, but the reason that this particular book has been treasured is that it bears witness to this person. So the interesting thing about the Bible is that it's never, to me, is that I don't ever see the Bible really pointing to itself. The Bible, to me, is always pointing to this person. It's bearing witness to this person. And when we keep that firmly in mind, I think that helps keep the Bible vibrant and alive for us. So we're coming in contact with this person. The Russian novelist Dostoevsky was converted reading the New Testament. Yeah. Yeah, he said that the thing that got him was the radiant, radiant. personality of Jesus Christ yep. that came through the pages. Yep. So to me, why is the Bible loved? The Bible is loved and cherished because the face of the God that we meet in Jesus Christ comes through. And yes. if you just get people into it, I mean, the scripture itself says that it's living and active. The word of God is living and active. It has this way. It's like irascible. It like does something to you. When and you it get gets in us it. ready for the word who has made flesh. It, you know, we, we are so quick to race to the word made flesh, which we should, but there is a word that was available to his people before the word was made flesh. And so now as we partake of it and get it in our bones, we're ready for Jesus. Our hearts are prepared for Jesus. That's such a beautiful way to say it. And I think, I mean, maybe if we, this might be a little bit trying to be too clever, but before the word was made flesh, uh, obviously the second person of the Trinity, there's a sense in which God makes his word known through story and through teaching flesh. and through poems and yeah. songs. Yeah. And so, so even the way the scriptures arrive to us, they don't drop out of the sky. They weren't all dictated to a person in a cave over a span of a few days. Yep. This arrives over several different generations, and yet there is a cohesive narrative to this. And this is not to say, oh, these are the proofs that this Bible is scripture. No, no, no. It's just what makes it beautiful, and yeah. it's what makes it remarkable. I want to, On that point, I want to try to ask a difficult question here. One of the things I think gets people out of reading the scriptures or hurts their confidence in the scriptures is that just speaking to the human element of it, there are things in the scriptures that are troubling. I mean, the people of God in the Old Testament especially are not necessarily exemplary human no, right, beings. Right. So there's this like troubling human element of the scriptures. How is it that that human element, even in its troubling nature, can be a channel for the divine, for God to reach to us and speak to us? I think if I were to try to say, if we can pick one paradigm to approach this book as, and we, you know, I mentioned the ones earlier, not a textbook, not a this and that, but if we were to say the closest thing to it that we might be able to understand is that it is a grand story with a capital S. It's the story of God and his world and God at work in his world through his people, through a particular people, not a perfect people 
people, but a particular people through whom God decided to make himself known. And so then all of a sudden you, you start to read the story a little bit differently because God in his great compassion sort of condescends to us, you know, comes downward to us and meets us where we are. So he meets a humanity that is superstitious and that is nervous about this and that. And he says, yeah, and he says, okay, in your world full of deities, let's start with this. There is one God and I am he. I'm the only one with whom you have to deal, you know? And then he says, now let's talk about all this violence stuff. Let's start by don't kill your enemies, you know? But by the time you get to Jesus, that picture becomes into sharper focus. But what we are seeing is a God self-revealing in a very patient way. I was going to say patience matters. I've been reading my kids uh, first and second Kings and first and second Samuel. And I mean, they're 10 years old, eight years old. I'm leaving the five-year-old out of some of these stories because <laughs> he just ain't ready. Mm-hmm. And my eight-year-old might not be ready. But the point that I keep making is, you know, we're reading these stories and I can see their eyes just wide open like, okay, David went in and raided that town and he destroyed all these people. And I'm saying... Do you think that that means necessarily that God commanded him to do that? Right, right. So so these stories are here not necessarily to tell us what God wanted everyone to do in every single case, but what they did do and how patient God was to work with them and to pull them out of it. So I'm talking to my kids about the patience of God and that he works with us where we are. And so anyway, these scriptures are, they're wild. This is a really important point that when we stop looking at the Bible as providing specific moral advice for everything that we fall into and more as the story right. of how God is capturing a people for himself, it really changes things. Can you speak to that? I just love what you're saying there, Daniel and Andrew. I mean, this what we're trying to do is because there is a particular context and a particular culture, we're trying to put ourselves in that moment and to say, in what way was God dealing with this people? And then how do we begin to understand that? Where do we fit in this story? So one of the classic ones, right, is Abraham and Isaac. Everybody always trips up about that. And they say, well, how oh, God, I don't want to serve a God who would require, how could? how could he, you know? But what you're forgetting is you're reading that story against the backdrop of 21st century, likely Western eyes and ears is how you're listening to it. And you're thinking, how offensive is this story? But if this story was being set against the backdrop of pagan civilizations where their deities, all of these deities, and Molech and other deities, their way, their highest form of showing devotion to a Canaanite or pagan deity was child sacrifice. Basically, now all of a sudden you see how gracious God is because God meets Abraham and speaks to him in a language he can understand. He says, Abraham, you've only learned one way to show extreme devotion. That's because that's what all the neighbors are doing. And so fine, let's use your language for devotion. Would you be willing to give me your son? And then when he sees that Abraham's willing, God says, now let me give you a bit of revelation and, and show you that I'm not like those gods. I'm not the God that requires child sacrifice. In fact, I'm the God that provides the sacrifice. So Abraham walks away from that moment not only knowing that he's sort of passed this test of of being willing to show extreme devotion, but Abraham walks away with a revelation of who God is, with a name for God. Yep. You are the God who sees and provides. Yep. Guys, I wonder if this might be a good time to talk about the story of Scripture in five acts. Mm. A lot of times people go, how do I know where each... genre fits. Uh How do I know what I'm working with? Because it seems like there's different plays being made with different portions of scripture. And so N.T. Wright and Eugene Peterson, a bunch of people have talked about this through the years, but scripture in five acts. Number one is creation. God is the creator. He saw that it was good. It's beautiful. He organizes it rightly out of chaos. He brings the thing into order and he sends his created beings to be the superintendents of it. Go run. Yes. (laughs) Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3, we've got fall. 
We've got the created being saying, we got this now. We've got a better idea. I will be like God. Take the story into our own hands. Now we're at this moment of tension. What will God do with his creation that is rebellious and giving him the middle finger? Well, the next movement is Israel. He will raise up a people for himself. Hey, Abram, come here. Leave your home. Leave your family. I got something new for you. Go. And he creates out of him a nation that is a blessing to the nations of the earth. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a blessing. Well, Israel can only do so much. They've got this beautiful story and this beautiful constitution called the Torah, and they're trying, but they just keep hitting the ceiling. Movement number four, we've got Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. He brings the thing to an apex. In him was the whole story brought to consummation. He doesn't emerge out of nowhere. Exactly. He comes from somewhere, but he brings this people who was meant to be the blessing into the fullness of the blessing, and he makes blessing to the nations possible once and for all. And so that's the fourth movement. The fifth movement would be church slash new creation, if you will. Now here we are on the backside of the Jesus story, and what does it look like for us to carry this story forward in the power? of the Spirit. So talk to me about the story of Scripture in five acts. How might that help the church? Well, I think it's huge for us. I think we live in a world that's trying to figure out what is the story. (laughs) Right. Like, what really are we living in? Is the story of democracy the true story? The story of capitalism, the triumph of capitalism, is that the true story? Is the story of power or the postmodern story that says that the only real story is the one you write? Is the one you write for yourself and then we find ourselves existentially adrift. Full of angst. I mean, it sounds so freeing. You get to write your own story. And then you think, oh no, how in the world do I write my own story? I can't do this. It's brilliant. So to say, especially as Glenn said, in the middle of a postmodern culture where the story for so many people has fallen apart or there's competing stories everywhere to say that there is a story. Encoded. Encoded, yes. And there is a story that is begun in love. Yes. And carried through. The weight of our failure is carried through to love. Jesus dies on the cross as the absorbing of human failure because of the covenant and creator God's commitment of love to us. Mm -hmm. And our story is being carried through to an end Mm -hmm. in love Mm -hmm. in God. Mm -hmm. There is something about that. We cannot prove that, the truth of the story empirically, but there is something about it that that story, when it begins to seep into the minds and the imaginations of people, it has nothing less than, I think, the power to convert the mind and the will and the emotions into a different way of being. And there is not a time, I'm not saying that every time I open up the scriptures, I'm just feeling it and everything's flowing right, but there's not a time where I don't open up the scriptures and find that this is the God who just keeps rushing at me to bring me into blessing and to make me a blessing. And if you'll open yourself up to it, like we've just gotten so distracted, people. We are so distracted. We preachers, it's easy to functionalize scripture and just to kind of use it for our jobs. But if you will set yourself aside and go away and you'll close the door and you'll open up this ancient book, the spirit of God is going to come and find you. I think it's a time to fall back in love with this story. I agree. There's a historian who says that in history, it's most important to be able to hold together the grand outline and the significant detail. Ooh, that's good. And I think that's so helpful for preachers and for people working with the scripture over and over again, help them catch the grand outline and then also the significant detail. So are there details in the story? There's lots of details. Are all of them significant? Not in the same way. Right. And so we have to help people. And again, whether we're talking (laughs) about the Genesis stuff or the Abraham and Isaac, sometimes we're paying attention to the wrong parts of the story. 
I mean, how many things, even in Paul's letters, and we make much of this phrase, when actually it's the other phrase that would have been the thing that was most countercultural and the, the thing that, was, that tells us the most insight into the heart of God. And so the grand outline and the significant detail. I want to circle back to a point that we touched on a little bit earlier. And Glenn, you kind of gave us a nice walkthrough in the Abraham and Isaac story, how God was working through culture to subvert that culture and reveal something of himself. If we believe, as Jesus said, that the whole scripture points to him, to his incarnation, his death, and his resurrection, that is, it's all bearing witness to him in some way. How can holding on to that help us with some of the more troubling aspects of scripture? Just the sense that God is willing to work with where we are and that that isn't his final landing place or, or design for us, you know? And so even as we're reading scripture, to do some of the hard work to, to bridge those gaps and to say, what was this like in the first century? What was this like in the ancient world? Where does this sit against its pagan context? Where does this sit in comparison? I mean, even the Genesis story, you know, like if we don't also read Akkadian creation myths or, or at least know a little bit about it, and as preachers, this is where we can help our people, and to say, this is the stuff you need to be paying attention to and not that. And and to trust that the Lord does his best work in the soil of humanity, in the soil of this world. So if movement number three of the scriptural story is Israel, it's coming out of movement number two, which is the fall, which is to say that these people were orphaned. Yeah. There was no fatherhood happening in the world yeah. <laughs> because we had divorced ourselves from fatherhood. We had said, no, thank you, God, we got this. So he creates Israel and you find this Torah and very much of it, you know, the Levitical commands and these, to us, very obscure commands. It's easy to go, oh, that's just a God who's uh, ticked off and we caught God on a bad day and therefore he put these rules on us. No, he's taking people who are orphaned and he's making them children. And he's teaching them how to live. He's constituting for himself a people. He's standing them up on their own two feet. They're coming out of slavery, 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt. They don't even know how to function. So he's putting, he's putting these boundaries in place for them to learn how to stand up. But movement number four is the most crucial because the son himself comes to us. Yeah, that's good. To the orphaned ones and says, now this is what it is. Let me take you into the fatherhood of my father. And so Jesus shows us the way to be children. Yes. So good. And helps us read the rest of the scripture in a way that's truly redemptive. I think about all of those, uh, what the what scholars would call the imprecatory psalms, mm -hmm. for instance, those psalms where the feeling of injustice is so profound that the only thing the psalmist can say is break the teeth in their mm -hmm. mouths, God. What's going on there? Like, how do you read that Christianly? And I think that you read that Christianly by saying, that desire and that thirst for justice is deeply encoded right. in us. That's right. And God so the psalmist here, God yep. put this there. Yep. And this psalm is bearing witness to that. And at the same time, we can trust our thirst for justice to the God who is capable of making things right yes. beyond our own agency and effort. And so that psalm... That's part of a river yes. that is leading to Jesus who one day yeah. yeah, who one day comes along and says, You actually don't need to take vengeance on your enemies because vengeance belongs to God. Yep. And he's going to rectify this. And so there's the, a way to read the scripture, the troubling aspects of yes. scripture through the lens that of the person us, of Jesus that keeps us firmly in the character of God. The thing that's so huge about what both of you said is 
we can't minimize how much of a cliffhanger the end of the Old Testament is, or the end of yeah, Act 3. Yes, yeah. I mean, if you imagine that 400-year period of silence as the intermission in the five-act play, I mean, this is a dark sort of intermission, right. and it's the utter collapse of every institution in Israel. By the time you get to the end of it, you, you've seen um, the priests have totally fallen apart. The end of the book of Judges is a dark story about Prophets the priesthood yep. sort of trying to take justice into their own hands, and what a mess that made. Mm-hmm. And you see the whole king, the throne aspect of Israel's life fall apart because there's evil kings and they're oppressing the poor and they're using their power for their own gain. And then the prophets kind of fall apart. Remember, one of the last prophets we hear about is a guy who is mad that God shows mercy. Right. I mean, this is <laughs> this, this is the absolute uh, dissolution of all of these institutions that were supposed to carry yes. out justice and righteousness, the mishpat and the tzedakah. And so we make the wrong cliffhangers. Sometimes right. we say, oh, the cliffhangers, the, you know, the law could never really save it. The, the cliffhangers, not the law, the cliffhangers, the infection was so bad that even the people who were supposed to carry the cure were infected. So speaking of cliffhangers, we're going to call this the end of part one of our conversation on what is the Bible. We hope that you'll join us again next week for part two of what is the Bible and how does it function in the local church. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you.